Welcome to the Almost 30 Podcast. I'm Lindsay. And I'm Krista. And we're your hosts, guides, and friends on this path. Almost 30 is not about your age. It's about the feeling. All of us are almost something, seeking community and resources to support the rumblings of transformation within us. Our conversations are deep dives, shepherded by our insatiable curiosity and desire for connection, enduring inspiration, and a sense of levity that we can all benefit from. We're looking to find the magic in the human experience. Buckle up, baby. Your evolution is waiting. You're now tuned into Almost 30 Podcast. How does it feel? How do you feel today? Oh, let's check in. Running a mile a minute. Need to catch a break. (laughs) We got you. We truly got you here at Almost 30. We're a place where we laugh a lot. We learn a ton. And we hope that you can find some comfort and peace in our own stories and just the exploration that we decide to embark on. We could guests. say that we live, laugh, love. We live, laugh, love. You could say that we are. We have livers. a neon in our studio. Yes. <laughs> Laughers and lovers. <laughs> <laughs> of all things, truly. This is going to be a great, great, great episode. I'm really excited that you're here. Here at Almost 30, if you're new, we talk a lot about healing. We talk a lot about spirituality. We talk about wellness. We share our stories and we try and be really open and real and honest with you. And this conversation with Vienna Farinon is going to be incredible. It was she and I that got to sit down and talk a lot about her book, The Origins of You, which I've now read, and so many topics and parts of it I felt like were so relevant for our journey, for the journey of our community. And I think this conversation is going to be so, so helpful for you in understanding your origins so you can support yourself in living a life that you love. Yeah, I think it's something that's a little bit difficult for us in like a modern world where there's so much emphasis and so much energy moving forward. So it's on the next thing, the big goal, the big dream, the big vision, and what you need to do next in order to achieve that. And I think therapy has really been so helpful for both of us in realizing that in order to unlock the next step or the next opportunity or even the next version or level of ourselves, we must explore the past. And it doesn't mean we have to live there. It doesn't mean we have to like just sit in our own shit for a long time. It really just means having the awareness, having the compassion for what's been running in the background and basically driving our decisions without us even knowing. So I think going back can catapult us forward in a very, very real way and give you the momentum that maybe you've been searching for. A hundred percent. And Vienna actually, so she did a workshop in a community that I'm in a year ago. And I remember her workshop was so powerful. And so to see her now, you know, doing this book and writing this book, I was really excited to just be with her in person. And it's so interesting because I have a friend, a dear friend of ours that's so progressive and advanced. And I remember we were recording a podcast And she was talking about something that's coming up for her. And I was like, oh, well, what happened in your childhood or what happened back then to potentially lead to this this thing that you're experiencing? She's like, I don't really do that. I don't really think that 
you know, that's what it is. So I'm like, interesting. <laughs> totally. And then we were hanging out. And then two hours later, she tells me the story of her parents or something that like completely led perfectly mm. to this thing she was experiencing. I was like, I wish I was qualified. <laughs> but we can always see people's stuff clearer Better, than our own. Yes, you know what I mean? Yes, always. And when you're looking for that. But I'm really grateful that I had the challenge that I had with my mom and healing the mother wound and really learning to find gratitude and reverence for our relationship because that anger and frustration actually gave me the opportunity to find a place to place blame. So I never had a problem with finding out what my parents had done to me. It's almost like in the victim mentality. So I'm I'm actually grateful that I wasn't someone that was like, my childhood was perfect. Everything was fine. My parents were amazing. They never did anything wrong because sometimes that can actually prevent you from looking at your childhood and looking at your trauma and looking at the things that you might not think were big deals from the perspective of your brain now, but actually were big deals from the perspective of your brain as a child. Because until the age of seven, your brain is just recording everything. It's just watching, recording, watching, recording, watching, recording. And so I have so much gratitude for the challenges that I've had because it gave me that place where I'm like, I want to see where they left me up. I want to see where they screwed me up so I can understand and then I can change my life. And going through that work of the mother wound and now actually in my life, I'm exploring so much more of my, my dad, a little late, but you know, exploring our relationship is transformational. And then in the end, it can obviously bring you to a place of greater compassion and understanding for them because they were doing the best they could at the time. And I think oftentimes people have a fear of going to their past because they have an idea of what their life was and they don't want to have any other version of that kind of ruin what they thought they experienced. And not to say that they didn't experience what they experienced, but an example of that would be, you know, if you're someone who's like, I had a really amazing childhood. Like nothing was wrong. My parents were amazing. My family was awesome. Like I had no big T trauma and I'm, I just feel really grateful. And that might be true. Absolutely. And I think there is this really complex way in which this perfection or seemingly perfect childhood or perfect life could be influencing you now in the way that you expect your life to be. So when you come across an experience that is not so perfect and you're really challenged, how how you be? <laughs> like, how do you approach those She things? said it, how you be. How you be. <laughs> <laughs> I want to make a meme of your face just saying, how you be. Because <laughs> it's like... It's true. I... Not saying that we all need to go through these really hard things in order to navigate challenging times, but does it dysregulate you? Do you freeze? Do you avoid? Do you numb? I'd just be curious. It's not always the big T trauma that creates these patterns that could be affecting you. Huge. I think that's incredibly huge. And unhealed pain or wounds in the family of origin really manifest in adult behaviors in surprising ways. So you could have work challenges interpersonal struggles, you could have poor relationships, like a lot of what we saw is really influencing how we interact with our day today. So really understanding our past and understanding these traumas and wounds that we received really support us in rewire. I can't, I've had a hard time saying rewire. it's a hard word. Rewiring. 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 <laughs> Re Don't be afraid to say the W. Yeah. Rewiring. <laughs> 
Rewiring. <laughs> no, the other day I, I did that on a story. I was like, yeah, I'm rewiring. I was like, rewiring, <laughs> rewiring, and reprogramming to really improve their relationships and our lives. Something that I'm really working with that was a topic that was in her book mm-hmm. that I was kind of exploring in my therapy this weekend was hypervigilance. And so people that are hypervigilant are constantly really scanning their environment, their relationships, and their surroundings for any indication of lie, deception, or betrayal. And it's like self-protection. And that perfect example of that was when we were on tour. Do you remember that bird? We saw this bird that had a broken leg and was walking with a broken leg. Oh, dude, yeah. And I I literally go over to Lindsay and I go, he's lying. I like said that a bird was lying about having a broken leg. Like that's how much I like have a problem trusting people. And the thing for me too is the scanning of environment. And I was talking about this situation with my therapist this weekend where we were at a group therapy retreat on site in Tennessee. And I was kind of depicting the experience that I had where I had to share something very vulnerable with a group of people. And the whole time I was recapping that experience, I was so focused on everyone else's experience Mm -hmm. where even when I was sharing something deep for me, I could not not scan every single person in the room to see if they were interested, if they cared. And then in my mind, I'm like, no one cares. No one can be trusted. Why am I doing this? And my therapist said, she's like, well, what if you sharing something that you had been through wasn't about them? And what if it was about you? And I was like, whoa, I've never actually thought about that. Mm. Because it's actually not about if they're trustworthy, if they care, right? if, you know, there is a space and place for that. But it's about me actually having the healing release truth moment that I came there for. So in the book, she talks about hypervigilance, but I think that's something that a lot of people, especially empaths, can definitely have an experience. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I have a similar tendency, but it's a little different. Like my experience, more so in the past, but like definitely depends on how other people are receiving what I'm saying or just me in general. And I think that comes from a little bit of like a perfectionism and needing for like that discomfort of acceptance. But I know like even Sean, he has a different version of hypervigilance when he goes into places as like a black man. There's something that I had to learn. I was confused as to why he was like always looking around. And I'm like, hi, I'm I'm the focus here. And we had to like have a conversation because I didn't understand So there's different versions of it, but it's something very interesting to explore that you might not be aware is kind of running and you become so unaware of it that like you kind of have to be like observed and then talk about it with someone that you trust. Yeah. Imagine the feeling in your body for Sean or for anyone that experiences hypervigilance for me in -hmm. different ways, but imagine that feeling of not having to scan. Yeah. Oh, yeah. The room of people. Mm -hmm. Do they care? Are they listening? Mm -hmm. And my hypervigilance makes me a great interviewer, makes Mm -hmm. me an amazing listener and friend, makes me incredibly attuned to the people in my life. So there's like a balance of it. I'm really grateful for Mm. what it's brought me, but it's like, when can you relax and not scan and not wonder and not all these things? Yes. There was also the trust wound which is really, really relevant and pertinent. And then there was also the experience where people could feel that they weren't prioritized. And I think our generation was a generation of people, probably our parents had it way worse, 
where kids weren't really in my the way I was grown up, we weren't really a priority. It was kind of like we were added to the family and then it was just like let's see what happens mm. with them or having us I in my experience it felt like my parents just having me was enough for them to do as parents and then we weren't really like our growth or our expansion or our consciousness or our experience wasn't prioritized. Yeah, I definitely think it could be a generational thing, but I had a different experience and it had its own kind of weird drawbacks where like we were the priority and they were not like as so, you know, not to say that's not the but it's an interesting thing where I think there's a balance, you know, and there's a way in which you can show it to children that is super effective. But we were the focus and like their relationship was not. So it's like later in life now they're like, hello, who are you? Mm-hmm. Well, <laughs> getting to know also, each other. You know, when when you're not prioritizing your relationship to one another, you're probably not prioritizing your relationship Ex- to yourself. Exactly. Exactly. And then it's like kind of in a secondary way, not prioritizing the children because it's so important to have that healthy relationship for children. Yeah. That's but, huge. Yeah. That's a really, really good one. I love too when she says in the book, wounds block healthy boundaries. And I think that's such a good one. So when people want to enact boundaries, boundaries is such a powerful conversation that people are so jazzed about when we think about why we cannot place healthy boundaries why we cannot have boundaries with people that we love or people that we maybe don't love what is stopping us from that and a lot of times it is our wounding yes maybe it's fear of speaking your truth maybe it's fear of having an opinion or perspective maybe it's fear that people will abandon you or not love you because you place boundaries Mm -hmm. yeah this this interview is chock full so please grab your notebooks and the book is origins of you and you can follow her on instagram it's mindful mft so it's m-i-d-f-u-l-m-f-t and she has an amazing instagram Mm -hmm. yeah she's incredible so you're going to really love this one the book is the origins of you and it is out now and i hope you enjoy thank you for sharing this with friends so you can be in conversation about these healing modalities and techniques to learn more about yourself thanks for following us on instagram and tiktok almost 30 podcasts both are popping off it feels really good almost 30.com for our membership for our courses and programs if you're a podcaster and want podcast coaching or podcast courses we got you And we will see you on the next one. Thanks for subscribing and being part of our community. See you on the other side. This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. Oh, therapy, y'all. I don't know. I just, I don't know what I did before therapy, to be completely honest with you. I think I was kind of a mess, but you know, found it when I was meant to. But I have been going to therapy for about six years now, which is so crazy. So crazy, but it has changed my life and I will continue to invest in therapy for as long as I can. I feel like it has totally, totally made my relationships better, made my career better. I am a better mom. I am a better wife. I'm a better friend. I'm a better daughter and sister Y'all, it's just the gift that keeps on giving. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It is entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. All you have to do, this is it. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. If you get matched and you're like, eh, not quite a fit, they make it easy and it's free to change. 
but I've had a lot of friends try BetterHelp and love it. So I really, really encourage you to start therapy. It's been the best decision I've ever made for myself. Find more balance with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash almost 30 today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash almost 30. Okay, I need to introduce you to a revolutionary new app, um, Superhuman. I have been doing these superhuman activations every single morning for the last three weeks. Let me just tell you, I kind of fell off of my game after I had the baby. Most of my time and energy was going to him still is, but I have been able to carve out time in the morning before I get into the swing with him. And I've been doing these activations. I do a lot of the shorter ones because I don't have a ton of time, but let me just say, this is new. Like this is a new type of audio that, um, are super energizing and really specifically designed to transform you into your future self. So I know a lot of us want to manifest things. I know a lot of us are thinking about planning for the future. Um, but a lot of us feel stuck. And so I've just felt like this has unstuck me in just the most beautiful way. So I've been doing a lot of their pep talks. I've been doing some of their writing activations. Uh, this morning I did the three morning questions. It was a seven minute, really vibey writing activation that I love. So I had my journal out. Um, yesterday I did a pep talk, uh, about tackling procrastination. There's a part of me that procrastinates quite a bit. So I'm just I love this. I love this. There's going to be an activation for you for this moment, for this day. Uh, it's incredibly supportive. So we actually interviewed Mimi Bouchard, the founder, not too long ago. Check out that interview. Uh, and we have a sample of one of the activations on our feed. So you can check that out as well. It's way easier to implement into your routine and far more effective than any other audio app out there. I've just noticed that I'm doing it much more consistently. So please don't miss out on this crazy deal. They rarely do discounts. On top of the 14-day free trial, get over 60% off your subscription for a limited time only at activation.com slash almost 30. Literally, there is no risk. If you change your mind and forget to cancel after the trial, you're covered by their money back guarantee. The offer is only available through their website, not on the app store. So that's activations.com slash almost 30 for 60% off. It expires soon. I'm so excited to have you here. I was digging into the book for the last couple of days and such a good one. It's such a good one. And it's a topic that so many of our community members have been thinking about and talking about. And it's something that I think you make really accessible for people to explore because oftentimes when people think about their family history or their experience growing up, there's a lot of fear or anxiety around that or exploring it seems a little overwhelming. So I'd love to talk a little bit about that just at the beginning, because when we're thinking about doing family origins work, what are sort of the connotations that people have around that work? What is some like general feedback that you usually receive around yeah. it that our community probably can relate to? Yeah, right. I think a lot of people are so scared of opening up Pandora's box, right? They're like, just want to focus on the thing that I'm coming into therapy with. Can we solve this? And, you know, I obviously always go back to understanding a person's family system and how they grew up and what they saw and what they experienced. And every once in a while, I don't see new clients now, but 
you know, people come in and they're like, nah, I don't want to go. No, I'm not, I don't need to talk about it. I had a great childhood. I just want to focus on what's presenting in my life right now. And yeah, we don't push that. You don't force something. But eventually it always comes back to that. But yeah, I think a lot of people have the concern that they're going to open up Pandora's box and there's going to be too much there. I think other people have gotten their relationships with their family to a certain point that feels okay right now. And so the idea of shaking that up is overwhelming. Maybe we have a deceased parent and the idea of coming into contact with something, naming something for the first time is, yeah, is overwhelming. What happens if I feel a different way about this person and they're no longer here? And probably one of the narratives that I hear the most is they did the best that they could with what they had. And that becomes the explanation. That becomes the way that they can reason mm -hmm. what happened. And it's interesting because that all of these things are distractions away from us actually honoring our pain. That's the whole point of this book is to allow ourselves to name it, to be with it, to honor the experiences that we had. And we do such a good job of avoiding that. And I know it can feel overwhelming and scary. And I get why people want to avoid going there. And also that just keeps us in the holding pattern. You know, that's what I've seen. I've worked with, I've been saying this now for years, 20,000 hours of therapy, direct therapy. And I guess it's more than that now, but I've worked with individuals and couples and families for so long. And no matter how many times they try to get around it, right, we come back to this. Like our pain wants to be felt. The things that are unresolved in our lives want to be resolved. And if you've ever found yourself in any type of unwanted pattern, okay, maybe that's what's going on today, right? the unwanted patterns that you can't shake are tied to that which is unresolved in your past. And I take the framework of understanding our families. Obviously, there are other influences in our lives for sure. But yeah, I am a big believer that we must take a look at our families and we must take a look at our childhoods and to see the things that we observed and experienced and witnessed and how that's still running the show today. When you were talking about people will say they did the best with what they could. I remember my therapist was like, so if I said they did the best that they could with what they had, would you believe that? I'm like, no. <laughs> I'm like the person that's like, no one's doing the best that they can. with what they Like there's a part of me, like a little girl part of me that's yeah. like, no one's doing the best that they can. But in this, I loved in the book how you talked about it's really the firsts, mm -hmm. like it's the firsts of things. And I think that was really profound in thinking that and kind of contextualizing how these things are so impactful for us. So can you talk a little bit about that? when we're thinking about the family of origins or sort of trauma or experiences that really shape us, how do the firsts play into that? That's it, right? And that's why I titled it The Origins of You, right? Like the original time that something happened that set the foundation, the framework, shifts the trajectory of where we're going. And I know a lot of us don't necessarily have all of the memories, right? Sometimes you feel like, I don't remember that's anything me. in childhood. Yeah. And that's okay, right? We can actually work ourselves backwards mm -hmm. to even if you don't remember the first time something happened, that does not mean that you don't want to or need to do this work. But when we get activated present day, what's happening is we are coming into contact with something that's familiar. It's really uncommon as adults to have a fully new experience. And what I mean by that is, sure, the context might be different, right? Like, 
It might be the first time that you're cheated on, but it might not be the first time you have felt betrayed. And so I think there is this need to understand, ooh, there's a surge of stuff that's coming up in this moment. And it's not just what's happening right now. This is everything that has happened in the past that feels familiar to this moment. And so our pain is, I say this in the book, our pain is not out to get us, right? Our wounds are not here to destroy our lives. They're not rubbing their hands cynically together like, I'm going to destroy her life. It's like our pain finds really clever ways to tug at us, right? It's like if you've ever <laughs> dated emotionally unavailable people over yes. and over again, if you've ever mm -hmm. found yourself in the same conflict that you just can't shake, right? It's like that's our pain bringing us back into contact with the thing that wants to be felt and acknowledged and observed and grieved and witnessed. that's the beauty that we can be really annoyed with it, but it's our system is so clever because it doesn't want us to just brute force our way through, white knuckle our way through. It wants us to tend to what's there. And so the origins, right? It's like the first time something left an impact on us. And obviously we have beautiful origins, lots of positive things. This book, obviously focuses on more of the negative stuff mm -hmm. that lays the foundation. But yeah, we have to begin to tend to that original pain so that it can release us almost. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting with the cheating example, when you said the feeling is betrayal, I think oftentimes people, it's like, it's a step to get to that, mm -hmm. to be like, I got cheated on and kind of be angry, but you have to go a little bit further and like, what's the feeling? Right. And I think a lot of people don't have access to the vocabulary of emotions or expressions to really get to the pain and the grief of mm -hmm. it and moving to the pain and the grief of it. I was just going to say, because I think it's so easy then to just focus on the other person too. Oh, totally. We're just angry at yes. the situation. We can't believe that this person yes. would have done this to us. And it's really easy to stay in the victim position yes. in that, oh, yeah. in, in any scenario, mm -hmm. right? It's like, look what has been done to me. Yes. And oh, I know sometimes we need to hang out in that space for a little bit yep. because we just need to. But when we stay in a victim position, we avoid our healing. Mm -hmm. It moves us further away from it. And so at some point, we have to step out of that position in order to actually tune back into ourselves instead of making it about everybody else. Yeah, that's huge. Yeah, it's and in Conscious Loving, Gay Hendricks talks about the fight for, in relationships, fights are often the fight for the victim position mm -hmm. and how yes. you can stay in that. And that was super profound cool. for me because, I mean, you see that happening with yourself. You see that happening with the other person. So within this, when people are in the victim, like how do we know how long being in the victim mentality is okay or healthy? Mm -hmm. Like when is the victim mentality sort of a supporting, loving aspect of ourselves that's really there and witnessing a part of ourselves? Mm -hmm. And when is it detrimental? It's about becoming very intentional with it, which is really hard yeah. to do when you're just feeling yeah. all of the feelings. And especially when they're so familiar, it's like, this always happens to me, yeah. right? Here we go again. And so we can really wallow. And how do we know I think it really requires us to be very honest with ourselves, which can be hard in that position, is this keeping my suffering. And I think it can keep us there pretty quickly. I think to be in that victim position, maybe right in the beginning, there's that moment of, okay, yeah, something happened and this was really terrible. 
need to feel that. And I think sometimes when we're speaking to our friends or and we're saying this is what this person did, there's something about getting that validation and yep. attention from people who are there to love us mm -hmm. and to support us and sometimes say what it is that we really want to hear that may not actually be what <laughs> is actually valuable 100%. for us, right? The, the friends were like, yeah, screw this person. And you're like, we need a you little know, bit like of the, that. that list where you're like, this yes. is a screw this person. Yes. This is like a not. You're like, who do I want right I now? Know. I know. It's so funny because we were talking about this yesterday. One of my friends who was hosting a book launch party for me hey. and someone was like, Vienna just will not go to that place when you want her to because she's always like, well, let's understand what's going on with the other person. And my friends are like, fuck that person. Yes. <laughs> I'm like, no, no, but we want to look at the whole system. Totally. So I'm not the friend to come to yes. for that. Yes. But there's a little bit of that that can feel good in the moment. Yeah. Fine. Okay. But then we want to move out of that because otherwise all we do is wallow. We stay in that place. We get the things we think we need to hear because it makes the other person the villain. And we get to, I don't know, be holier than thou in some way. And that doesn't us. Grief moves us. Witnessing in the right ways move us, right? Tending to our origin pain, right? Whatever it is that's happening in our lives that's bringing us back into the familiarity of the pain. Right? Those are the things that move us. When I have us look back, it's not, one, it's not for us to stay in the past. It's not to throw parents or anybody who was a parental figure in our lives under the bus. It's not to wallow. It's to tune in, to check in, to understand our roadmap, to understand the frameworks so that we can actually move forward. So we're not here to wallow. We're not here to go on some wild goose hunt. We're here to identify what is true so that we can move forward. And to the point of they did the best that they could. And oh, well, because I was on Erin Sarah Foster's podcast <laughs> recently and Sarah was, said the same thing. She's like, Screw that. I literally said, yeah. what are you talking like, about? And I think sometimes there's a perspective. I talk about Andre in the prioritization chapter, and he shared with me that he has a single mother. She's working multiple jobs. She works double shifts every day. The only time that they get together is on Sundays to go to church, and they have brunch afterwards. And he could sit in session and really rationalize that his mom working these double shifts was her way of prioritizing. Right? He loved and respected her so much. But that rationalization kept him from naming what it is that he had to name. And eventually he could get to the place of, I wanted to be more prioritized by her, period, right? I wanted to feel prioritized by time spent with her, period. Not she was doing the best that she could, which was true in this case, right? Not she's amazing and she's doing everything she possibly can to make sure that I have a life that she wants me to have, which was true. And can we still honor what the experience is, right? Like you wanted to feel prioritized and you didn't through time spent. And so that's where it's so important. We just can explain away the story. Yeah. We move away from honoring what is just true for us. And I think one of my favorite questions that a therapist once asked me was, what did you want most as a child and not get? Mm. And that is a very profound question that if you just take a beat and ask it and answer it. Yeah, it's, you know, the concept around that example yeah. with Andre is thinking, you know, being able to hold two truths. Right. It's like, how can we hold both as true? And I'm curious about in that situation, 
Because in my experience with, if we're thinking heterosexually with men and women, do you perceive this to be true as well? Men rationalize that experience and are able to sort of have that. And in my experience with women, I do feel like women hold a higher standard to mothers Mm -hmm. or a higher standard to maybe other women or their parental figures. And in my experience, have been able to really go there and explore the pain of it rather Mm -hmm. than just kind of staying with the rational idea of it. Mm -hmm. I think that can be true. I also notice with, depending on different cultures, where there is such an emphasis on the sacrifice that parents make. And so when there's a cultural element to it, right, so whether it's men or women, it's like there can be this explanation of you must have gratitude, you must have appreciation. What we went through, right, is so far worse than what you're going through, right? And so there can be this this erasing of you get to have an emotional experience here. And so you have to be really tender with understanding the cultural differences that are coming to play here. And yes, I, certainly to your point about women and mothers, I think that there absolutely is a lot of yeah friction yes. and you know raw spots there. Yeah. Gosh, there was a stand-up on Netflix. Who was it? It was a guy. And I I forget who it was, but in the bit where yeah. they just show it in the beginning, they're like, you know, your your dad could have messed with you so badly. And you're like, hi, daddy. Thank you so much for showing up. And your mom is like the kindest, sweetest thing. And she's like, hey, can I fold your sweater for you? And you're like, fuck you, mom. Yes. You know, it's like why we yes. have all of this energy yes. towards the mothers. So without getting too lost on that, I yes. think there is a lot of, oh, this is our primary Oftentimes, and there's such a high expectation for mothers to show up in a particular way. And I also think that mothers, we're going to go down a different path here, but I can understand why there's so much victim mentality Mm -hmm. with mothers. I am a new mother about almost two years in, and I can really connect to how quickly resentment can show up and how when there isn't an equality there in terms of who else is With you and your partner. Yeah. Yep. Which is not the case with me. I have a phenomenal partner, but even I can notice with us where we're like, oh, there Mm -hmm. it is, right? If we don't feel like we are contributing equally, it is so easy to start to move into that resentful place. And I think I am probably an exception when it comes to having a partner who shows up as equally as Connor does. And so I can fully connect to how people can start, especially mothers, right, can start to feel like I'm doing so much. No one gives me acknowledgement, appreciation, gratitude, and then they just stay in that cycle for so, so long. Yeah. Yeah. That was one thing in my last part on the mother. It's like the mother wound healing was really coming to that place where I would sort of look around and realize how much the standards were. I was like, why do I have such Mm -hmm. a disparity between how I loved my dad and how I loved my mom? And I had to really look at how you know, as precious and amazing as my father was, he wasn't really available emotionally. Mm -hmm. And I was holding my mother to the standard that maybe the media had portrayed her to be or what I had thought a mother should be like. And I had to be really honest about how I held Mm -hmm. my mom to the standard. And I think women do that a lot with other women in culture and society. We're just really, really hard on one another. But I wanted to just go back to the victim moment just to kind of wrap that up. What I was noticing when you're talking was in the exploration, when, we're, when we have that moment of feeling like we want to be victim, mm-hmm. it's okay in the, in the moment, but we kind of need to move beyond it. And what I'm perceiving is that the victim is really 
a focus on the other almost Mm -hmm. where we're not focusing on our own feeling and wounding and like our own grief and our own experience. It's really like this person did this to me, this person, this. Or if we are focusing on ours, it's not to move it. Yeah. Right. Like we it's really what we keep saying about the wallowing. Like when we're in that place, it's not us actually tending. I think we are focused on the other quite a bit. And if there are the moments where we're like in the poor me and I can't believe this, you know, it's not to move us out of it. It's to stay in it. And I think that's a very important question to ask. Right. Is it is what I'm doing emphasizing staying here? Right. Because what do I benefit from? What does it serve for me to stay here? And it's not a positive thing. Obviously, we know that people will be like, well, it doesn't serve anything. I know it just keeps me stuck. Mm -hmm. But okay, well, like, why does staying stuck serve you? What do you benefit from? Oh, I get to keep this story that everything always happens to me. Or I get to be the one who always has this story that friends are like, oh, my gosh, this is so terrible. It's like I've heard people say that before. Right? I've had clients who have said, I don't move out of it because I'm essentially the entertainment for people. Mm, Yes. And like, at least then I have a story to give and I get attention this way or I get some validation this way. I don't know how to get attention or validation from others in any other way. And so that question is so important. It's like, what does it serve for me to stay here? What would happen if I didn't stay here? Uh Mm Uh-oh. What happens then? Do people stop paying attention to Mm -hmm. me? Do people not show up for me then? And again, like I said, it really requires clear, honest lenses and goggles to be able to look at it. Because that's a tender thing to ask and acknowledge. I, I can imagine people hearing that like, ooh, cr-, you know, like, oh, yeah. ouch, you know, mm-hmm. oh, mm-hmm. no, do I not get attention mm-hmm. then? And I'm not suggesting that is what it is for everyone. But that's the question that you want to ask. What does it serve for me to stay here? And then what do I believe happens if I move out of this position? Yeah, when I think about the family of origin, something I was curious about, too, with the first is like, what if we have a first that's not with the family? Mm-hmm. If it's a situation with someone outside of the family, does that still hold as much weight or is it the affirmed patterns that we saw over time continually with a family member? I do talk about that there can be firsts that happen outside of childhood and there are firsts that happen without the family system. A first for some of us could have happened a few weeks ago. It's possible that we have and a very new experience. I would still say that there's probably most of the times still a connection to the familiarity of something that gets activated. But yes, we can have firsts with loads of, you know, our first partners, for example, your boyfriend, girlfriend, whatever. It's like there's going to be first experiences there, but how, what it brings us into contact with is still going to have a connection to something within the family system. And one thing I think when people who are doing this work can kind of, or maybe this is just a fear that I have, but sometimes I feel like, okay, if I'm going to go back, when am I stopping? Mm -hmm. Like, when does it ever end? Because it feels so big to Mm -hmm. go back 30 years or however many years it is. So what is a path or way that you suggest people start with it by the patterns that they're experiencing right now Mm -hmm. that they want to shift? Or what would you say? Yeah, I think noticing the patterns that you're wanting to shift right now, noticing where you're the most reactive. So reactivity is a really good indicator that there's something that's unresolved, right? So neon sign pointing the arrow to an unresolved wound. And I also find when you can give advice that you can't take, that's a big one, right? Think about all the things... 
do not text your ex back. And then all of a sudden you're like texting your ex back yourself or just be confident. But then you are posting only the things that you've altered 20,000 times because you're afraid of what people might think. It's like, yeah, when you can't embody what it is that you are putting out into the world, you know, when you can't live that you so easily are able to offer others, it's not an invitation for shame. It's just an invitation for inquiry and reflection. Like, why can I give this advice? And I know it's the right thing for the people I love in my life. But when it comes to me, I seem to struggle with it. Right? So again, that's going to lead us to unresolved pain. How long do we stay there? We will be, God willing, 85 and still needing to resolve some stuff. And at different points in our lives, at different developmental stages, as life unfolds and whatever it is that's going on in our world, we're going to come into contact with something. You'll do that for the rest of the time that you have here. And not all of it is relevant or pertinent for where you are today. So I imagine as we age and maybe we start losing people in our lives or our friend circle starts to decrease, okay, and we come more in contact with mortality. It's like that's, oh, what's this going to bring into contact? Or retirement. Okay, what's that going to bring into contact for me in terms of worth and value to the world? If I'm not working, if I'm not performing, who am I? As children maybe start to leave the home, then what? So I, I say that because, yeah, there's probably endless stuff that we can do, but we don't need to. It's about what's happening in our lives right now that's pointing to something. And 10 years from now, it's going to point to something else. And 20 years from then, it's going to point to something else. And <laughs> that might feel, I don't know if that's exciting or like, very okay. overwhelming. I think that was getting older, realizing it never yeah. ends. Yeah, like, it okay. never ends. There isn't a sense of completion, right? It's like, yeah. you're not going to just finish this work this time. You'll probably wind up reading this book over and over, maybe another 10 years from now, or you're going to pass it along to somebody else in your family. But I think there's a little bit of relief and maybe also just the stress of, oh, it doesn't ever end and there will always be more. But I think when we get into the practice of it, that's where it doesn't feel overwhelming. You're like, I know how to do this. Yes. I know how to be with this. And when I have that framework, then that doesn't have to feel as overwhelming. So if this is the first time that we're starting to explore this, okay, you know, gentleness, compassion with the self. And also you're going to strengthen this muscle over time and you will begin to learn, oh, there's something reactive happening at whatever age, you know? And so now I know that there's something familiar coming up for me, right? And now I, oh, I'm going to go look for this. I'll give an example. When I was first dating my now husband, we got into a conflict and I have no clue what the conflict was about. But what I do remember, something big, I'm sure. yeah, something <laughs> really big. Absolutely. But what I do remember is that I couldn't stop proving my point and I needed to be right. I just kept going and going. Connor's like, I got it. I understand what you're saying. And he was, he was like, and I just kept going. He's like, babe, I understand. I get it. And I'm doubling down. I'm tripling down. I have this out of body moment yeah. where I'm watching myself yeah. do this and I'm like, stop please shut talking. up you, yeah. can't, you cannot stop talking the loop right? is on the loop is on and afterwards so much shame embarrassment mm -hmm. if i'm being really honest i was really worried like uh oh this is like really oh, yeah. unbecoming and obviously if i continued this behavior right the fear would be that you might not want to be with me and instead of staying in my shame right because i do this work and i i have 
some access to it. Right? I was like, okay, what does the need to prove my point serve? Right? Like, why am I proving my point? Why do I need to be right? What do I know about this? And what that led me to was I have a wonderful father now. And when I was growing up, my dad did engage in a lot of psychological abuse, manipulation, gaslighting with my mom. And I saw that really create a lot of like crazy making for her, lots of paranoia. And I watched that and it was never directed at me, but I saw the destruction that it created. And I became a little girl who watched every little detail. I was like, okay, I need to follow everything because you're going to flip the script really soon. And I need to know what is true and what is right. Hypervigilance, yes, right? Yes, exactly. And so I started to understand and connect to my need to be right. My ability to prove my mm. point was tied to my safety. So instead of just shaming and blaming and living in the embarrassment and being like, I can't believe I do this. This is so unbecoming. What is wrong with me? Part of this is about asking ourselves what it serves. Like, it's all protective. Our behaviors, our system is brilliant. It's doing what it needs to do. We might need an update, right? Because otherwise it's going to destroy relationships and it's going to be very detrimental to our lives. But if we can move away from that for a moment and like actually get curious about, okay, what's this behavior serving? What is it trying to protect me from? Then we find an answer to something that needs our healing. And so eventually I needed to shift from this little girl defense mechanism and protective mechanism to the wise, mature adult that I could actually find safety within the dynamic. And that I didn't to operate this way in my life with him, with really anyone. And that required origin healing work because otherwise that part would just jump in my driver's seat. Right? It's like either our wounds are in our driver's seat or our healing is in the driver's seat. I think that's what's so important is what do I need to do in order to get my healing in the driver's seat? Because otherwise I am just going to keep proving my point. And I'm not suggesting that I never do this. Right. It's mm -hmm. like. The outcome is not perfection and, oh, I never engage in it at all. But when you do this, you can see it much faster, right? There's more of a pause. You can step away from it, or at least you can apologize for it. And we all know where it's coming from. That's the beauty of doing that work with a partner too, right? It's like Connor knows where this comes from. And so sometimes he can say, hey, you're safe. You don't need to mm -hmm. prove your point right now. And that will disarm me in a moment. And I do that, that for part him of as you. well. Mm -hmm. But that's it, right? It's like, that's the inquiry. Mm -hmm. Okay, what is this protecting me from? Yes. Does it need to protect me right now mm -hmm. with this person? Mm -hmm. And beginning to go back in to that original pain. And that's where I needed to go is to see this little seven, little eight-year-old little me, like becoming so hypervigilant yeah. and watching all these things. And my gifts came from it. You know, that's Same. the hard part. Mm -hmm. People are like, oh, but if I do this healing work, am I going to lose my edge? Am yes. I going to lose the gift? My a colleague and dear friend, Dr. Alexandra Solomon, says our wounds and our gifts are next door neighbors. Ah, there it is, right? They are. But what motivates it is what changes. Is it the pain that's motivating the gift or can the healing motivate the gift? I am a phenomenal therapist. A lot of that to do with the fact that I see every detail and I don't miss anything and I don't forget anything. But I don't need for that gift to be motivated by my pain. I don't lose my edge. You don't lose your edge. You are still being driven by something, but it's coming from a much more conscious place as opposed to the unconscious pain driving it. 
It's like lose the pain, but keep the gift. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting hearing that example of that story because there's the part of me is like, oh, I actually would do everything I could to be perfect to avoid the conflict, uh -huh. to sort of yeah. not have it happen. I am juggling quite a bit lately. <laughs> I have a new baby, um, six months in, and uh, we are finishing our book and running a business and a marriage and a house. And um, it's just a lot, but everything is all good and just my dream, but it's a lot. But I have found that if my health routine is on point, then everything runs smoothly. And one huge piece of that routine is my supplementation. And Symbiotica has just always been a constant in my routine. Uh, if you haven't heard of Symbiotica, they're a health and wellness company that does everything with intention. I mean that from the bottom of my heart. Like I know them. <laughs> Shervin has been on the podcast many times. I just have seen how passionate, how incredibly intelligent, how dedicated he is to creating products um, that are clean, plant-based, uh, without toxic or harmful chemicals, which we need more of that in the world. Um, so let me just run you through what I'm taking. Um, I take the vitamin D3 K2. It's the liposomal form. I just squirt 12 little pumps in my mouth every single morning. I also take their B12. Um, I'm also obsessed with the liposomal vitamin C. I have these little packets whether it's winter or whatever season, it's obviously great for immunity, but it also um, is amazing because it has biotin, one of nature's most beautifying ingredients. Uh, so I've seen an improvement in my skin, hair, and nail growth as well. I do have mom brain, um, but I'm doing my best to just support my brain health in any way. So for brain health, focus and memory, I really love taking their liposomal magnesium L-threonate. Um, it's an innovative form of magnesium that is able to cross the blood brain barrier. It supports brain health, mood, immune system function, and overall well-being. It's incredible and tastes amazing. It's like this yummy vanilla cream flavor. That's the thing with uh, Symbiotica products. They taste unbelievable. So it really makes taking all of these supplements so easy, so yummy. And I actually look forward to it. So if you want to give Symbiotica a try, there is no better time. Right now is the time. Symbiotica.com, C-Y-M-B-I-O-T-I-K-A. Use our code almost 30, 20% off site-wide. So major. And then when you bundle and subscribe, which I highly recommend because you never want to run out of anything, uh, you're going to get an extra discount. So just do it up. Symbiotica.com and use the code almost 30 for 20% off site-wide. So I'd love to talk a little bit about hypervigilance because it's something that I have. And when I was able to really recognize it, oh my gosh, how much energy came mm. back to me, right. not being in someone else's mind or thought, mm. you know, just all over the space feeling safe. Mm. And I think from the community that, that we really work with, there are a lot of people that are deep fillers that are people that really can relate to that. So I'd love to talk about that, how that manifests and what it looks like. So I talk about five different origin wounds in the book. I talk about worthiness, belonging, prioritization, trust, and safety. And when I sat down to, I was like, started writing out like all the different wounds that we could all possibly have, right? And I felt like I got probably the majority of the human experience, I think, can really fall under these wounds. And when we think about hypervigilance, the first two that come to mind are the absence of safety and the absence of trust, right? So when we don't have those experiences, what happens for us as little humans is we have to become hypervigilant, right? 
So when there is an absence of safety, and that might be when we're talking about safety and the absence of it, we're also talking often about the presence of abuse. So emotional, psychological, physical, sexual, we're talking about negligence, we're talking about recklessness, right? It's a very tender wound. And we know that hypervigilance comes from, we think about trust, okay, betrayal, deceit, lies, whether it was directed at us or whether it was directed at someone that we love, right? It's like, okay, I have to constantly keep an eye out for the betrayal, for the deceit, for the lies, for the withholding. And so those are the first two that come to mind. You talked about perfectionism, which often falls in the worthiness wound, right? So worthiness, okay, am I deserving? Am I good enough? Am I worthy of da 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 da. And so in worthiness, there is a lot of conditional love. So for the perfectionists out there, for the people pleasers, for the comic relief, for the performers, right? Like the people who are like, okay, I am worthy. Yeah. <laughs> like, yep, like you just me. read my whole bio. <laughs> huh? Right. That's where you learned that I needed to be perfect mm-hmm. in order to be valuable, that I needed to be perfect in order to be loved that I needed to be a people pleaser or a performer in order to get attention, validation, peace, calm in a family, that there is a condition for the thing that I need, or there's a condition for the thing that a sibling. And so when that is what's established early on, so easy for us to maintain that role throughout life. And so, yeah, it's like our worthiness resides in that. And I think to step away for some people are like, oh my gosh, like the idea of allowing messiness to come forward yeah. and allowing imperfection to come forward, right? Is disappoint like disappoint people. Disappoint people, right? Like not say the quote unquote right thing yeah. or the thing that people want to hear or, 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 you know, it's like, ooh, yeah. And I learned really early on that it's, there's a, there's more layers to this and we'll probably get to it. But when I was a teenager with my dad, if I was easygoing, if I was just like really pleasant, easygoing, then love, connection, attention, validation, all of those things were there. And in the moments where I was more difficult, maybe I'd speak out on something or you wouldn't like what I had to say, then the behavior would shift and I would get punished by getting the silent treatment, sometimes days, sometimes weeks on end. And that was a, it was an experience that It confirmed something else that had already been established, but it let me know that my worthiness was tied to my easygoingness, that my worthiness, which was attached to attachment, connection, love, presence, all of the things, was connected to me not expressing myself, me not sharing when I didn't like something or was affected by something. And when my parents started their divorce process when I was in first grade, It was like so chaotic, so much conflict, right? There was just a lot that was going on. And I saw the two people I loved, the two adults in my life crashing and burning. And as a little human, I was like, okay, they're not doing well, so I need to be okay. I need to be fine. I need to be unaffected because there's no room for me to not be. And whether that was true or not, that was just my perspective as a little human. And I decided to just show up in the world like nothing bothered me. I was fine. I was good. And so that was a part of the layer where then later on when I started to see, uh uh-oh, 
when I'm difficult, right? When I do express something that I don't like, then boom, love gets taken or I get punished in that way. That really supported that original role that I had been in. And it wasn't until my late 20s, I was dating someone. I really thought there was a future with this guy. His ex came back into the picture. She wanted to be back with him. And he was trying to decide if he was going to go back to dating her or stay in the relationship with me. And if you think about the role that I had taken, t- taken on as a little girl and what I've just shared about expressing it's yourself, it's fine. It's fine. Just keep me posted. Yeah, just keep, I mean, <laughs> legit. I mean, legit. It's like a bit it's cringy. It's all good. It's all good. It's hard. You know, it's like now with perspective, I'm like, oh boy. But I mean, in the moment, right? And totally. I'm sure there's people listening to this who are in this, you know, who get this. It's like, of course. Yeah, I, I understand. Take your time. I'm I'm all good. You know, I, I get and the therapist part of me is like, I know that there's context and, you know, I'm like centering his yeah, experience dude. of all of this. Right. And and then I'm existing, obviously not OK. I'm talking to a friend and it all clicks in and I'm like, it's like 20 years earlier where I'm still pretending like I'm fine and unaffected by the things that are deeply affecting. And this might seem so simple to some people. But I think it's sometimes in these very simple moments, right, where the most profound shift and life-changing shifts happen. I remember calling him up and saying, I actually am really deeply affected by what's going on and I'm not okay with it. It doesn't feel respectful. You know, they're spending time together, everything. That was the end of it. And I'd love to pretend like it was this deeply empowering moment. I was like, yeah, I told you, you know, it wasn't. You I stomped I, away you know, in like your heels. Cry. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, I cried in the bathroom for you know months afterwards. Right. But it was this moment, I think, where I saw that the origin pain, right, that was ruling my life that had really forced me to pretend like I was unaffected, that everything was fine. You need to be easygoing. I had taken on the cool girl persona. Mm. I was the girl, you know, I was a... I was a dude's girl, you know, it was like, that's how, what I thought I yes. was. It's like, I'm down for everything. And like, I have yeah. no boundaries. And like, how cool yes. am I? Right. Like, don't you want to be with me? Cause I have no boundaries. Like that's so easy. And I was never, you know, able to express that I was actually affected by things. And until this moment, and that's where it is. Like, you have to understand that when someone who has never said, I'm not okay, says I'm not okay. That is wild. That is life changing. It's like that was something that changed the course of my life from there on out. My husband now is like, yeah, I don't know that woman at all. You'd have no problem telling me you are affected and not fine with certain things. And Yeah, where is she? But, you know, that's the pivot that Mm -hmm. I talk about in the book, right, is that when you do this work, when you understand, oh, okay, I can connect to what this wound is, and then you spend time witnessing it and grieving. That's what starts to open that space, right? I think many of us have heard the quote that's attributed to Viktor Frankl about between stimulus and response, there is a pause. And in that pause, it's like where our freedom is. And what happens with that pause, that pause starts to extend more when we do this work, because we know, okay, there's something familiar here. Instead of me just being reactive and going in on it, I'm, I'm reactive. And I'm like, okay, what's familiar about this? I get curious about it. And so the pause starts to widen even more. What's the origins of this? And then it widens even more. And you're like, oh, there, let me be with that pain. Okay, it widens even more. And I'm not saying that this happens in the moment, right? Like we have to be intentional about this when we have some space. Old me 
would have just kept saying, it's fine. It's all good. You just let me know the decision, you know, mm -hmm. Ugh. right? But the me who was doing this origin was able to finally step in. Okay. My hands were sweating. My heart was beating out of my chest. That's like, you feel sick, but I could still follow through and choose a different way. And I think sometimes when we choose a different way for the first time, you're like, I did it. I survived. I'm still here. It's oh, intoxicating. Yeah, it is. And that's where you're so like, okay, good. I can keep doing this. This wasn't so bad. Yes, there's pain. And yes, I need to process this ending, but I'm on a different path. And that's the subtitle of this book is how breaking family patterns can liberate the way we live in love. That's the liberation, right? That's the choosing a different way. But you can't just choose differently. That's what people want to do. That's where we started today. When we're like, people come in and they're like, this is what I need to figure out. And you're like, okay, well, let's talk about your family. I'm like, why would I talk about my family? Everything's okay. Like, no, if you can't just change the pattern simply, if you can, good on mm -hmm. you, go for it, start there. But if you keep coming back to the pattern, then you need to go back, period. Yeah, I think the choice is really huge when you can come to a place in your life where you're choosing the change in your life mm -hmm. and choosing what you experience. And that doesn't mean you're always choosing like, I'm choosing that he stays with me or I'm choosing that. Right. It's like, no, I'm choosing something that although is very painful, I'm being in control or I'm being in the driver's seat of the experience that I'm having by saying what I need to say and then going through what you need to go through. Mm -hmm. But making a hard choice like that is so intoxicating from my perspective, it's been so underrated mm -hmm. as like part of my growth when I've chosen something that is hard, mm -hmm. that might not make sense from the outside, that might cause me a lot of pain in the moment, but will liberate me in a way that I never would have predicted. And I always just want to bring that up because I think sometimes when we talk about these, people can hear the I'm on the floor crying mm -hmm. part and relate to that, which is really beautiful, but not remember like the freedom and liberation like you talk about that comes on the other side of those really hard decisions. Yeah. We don't always get the outcome that we want. Yes. You know, that like sometimes- That the mind wants. I know, you that know? the mind wants, right? In that moment, I of course wanted to yes. be in that relationship. Yes. That was so hard for me to realize that in saying what I was going to say was going to lead to an outcome that I didn't want. Mm. Yes. That's hard. Yeah. That's so hard yep. to do. And that was part of the tears. Of course, there was this part of me that was like, will he call? You know, like, yeah, of course. will he text? Honestly. You know, like, I, I made the mistake and, you know, I do want to be with you. And But that wasn't the motivation. Mm -hmm. and, and that never did happen. And that wasn't the motivation yeah. for it. Right. It was, I need to do this for myself. And I, there's this quote from the poem, The Invitation, where it says, I want to know if you can disappoint another to stay true to yourself. And that sentence alone is so, oh, it hits you right in the core so much because so many of us have been conditioned to not put our experience first. And I don't mean that from a selfish place. It's like, can you disappoint others? Can you do something that allows you to be expressed, that honors you? And this moment for me was about honoring myself, even though the outcome I, I did know that it wasn't going to go in the way that I obviously had hoped for. But the process of what happened for me did go to the outcome. I was honoring and respecting myself. And I was speaking something that I had never spoken before. So, yeah, it's not 
always easy. There is a question that I think is very important, which is, is what I'm about to do or say going to lead to peace or suffering? But you have to take that question one step further, right, to peace or suffering within the context of my healing goals. Because peace can sometimes be in the moment is, okay, if I don't say anything, that will keep peace. And of course, let me just put this out there. Of course, with safety, number one, right? If you're in an unsafe situation, then sometimes staying quiet is life-saving, right? So I want to just be very clear that I'm not encouraging people in unsafe environments to just push through. But if you are in a safe environment, right, then you're asking, is this is what I'm about to do going to lead me to my goals in terms of my healing, right, of peace or suffering? And so, yeah, peace would have been to stay quiet in the moment, but ultimately, right, peace was choosing to speak up for myself. Suffering in the moment was speaking up. It sucked, right? But suffering in the moment was also staying quiet too, right? And it's like that's, it's the short term versus mm-hmm. the long term. And also the peace is probably more for the other person because although right. there was peace, right. there was not peace. Right. You didn't have peace internally. And I think about that a lot with situations in my life or relationships or friendships where it's like, although there was technical peace and peace in my mind meant no conversation being had mm-hmm. of conflict, of needs, of wants, of experience, but there was a internal mm-hmm. unrest or right. there was internal So I think when people think about things, it's always been in my experience, like having the uncomfortable moment in a smaller window of Mm -hmm. the conversation of whatever has always led me to greater peace. Mm -hmm. And that's, you know, what we all deserve. Something you were talking about in your sort of example that I really loved as this example in the book was with Allie and Mike in the dating mm, conversation uh-huh. around connection. Uh-huh. And I would love to unpack that one because I felt like that is something that I see happen so often uh-huh. where people kind of negotiate all these things. And yeah. I think for our community in particular, it's such a relevant example. Yeah. So Allie was someone who really didn't want to voice any of her preferences, needs. She was early on in the dating process with someone and he was showing up late to some dates and we would talk about it. And she's like, well, I don't want to be that girl. You know, I don't want to, I don't want to say anything that I'm feeling because maybe he'll see me as difficult or maybe he's not gonna, he'll cut it off. And so I'm just going to, yeah, like grit my way through it. And for a little bit of context, Allie has a safety wound. And it's a it's a deep it's a deep safety wound that maybe is better to for the reader to mm-hmm. come into. But to know that she has a safety wound, she tries to express some of her pain that her original pain with her mom at some point that mm. you read about in the book. It doesn't go very right. And so here's this additional piece of data that says when you speak up, it goes south. Right. That when you speak up, somebody's going to be super reactive. They're going to get upset with you. you. They're going to abandon you. It's It doesn't go well, right? And so here we are in our therapy together. And she's like, you know, he's showing up to date slate, but I really like him. And I'm, I, I like want to know if there's a future here. I want to, you know, understand where this could go, but I'm not going to say anything. I'm not going to voice anything. And that was her way of trying, attempting 
to protect herself from an undesired outcome, right? Is he going to think I'm too needy? Is he going to think that me setting a boundary is too much and then cut out? Me asking him not to be late is too much. (laughs) And she could sit here and rationalize and I talk. Of course, all the reasons why he was late were like, okay reasons, right? He had to take his dog out after work. He ran late. It's like, it happens. Mm -hmm. It's not like we are unable to make a space for the human experience. But to still step into voicing without being so concerned about the outcome. Because we would have a conversation like, well, what if it ends? And it was like, well, I wish I could tell you that sometimes that saying what you need to say will always lead you to your desired outcome. It does. I know that's disappointing. Gets you to the ending faster. Yeah. The appropriate ending happens faster. Yeah. (laughs) Right. It's like the filtration system gets us there. And I think it's hard to step into it. But this is very much about honoring your own experience, right? centering your own experience. It does not mean that we don't have grace for others. Right? We're not here telling Mike that you are a piece of shit for you know, being 30 minutes late. It's like we get it. And also, I don't feel respected when I'm waiting around. And if you need to just make the date for 830 instead of eight, we can do that. It's like, there is reasonable things that we can say here, but I think this is a story that so many people can relate to, right? Whether you're a people pleaser, whether you're afraid if we have some type of worthiness wound or we're afraid that people are going to just leave us, if our outcome is like, I need to be loved, I need somebody to choose me, right? We put that above voicing. And so when we don't resolve whatever it is that's there, then we stay in dynamics where we can't voice what needs to be voiced. We can't have boundaries. I know this one, right? I was like, it's totally boundaryless. I'm good. I'm fine. Whatever. No problem at all. But what happened there is I was, I allowed myself to be taken advantage of. I allowed for behaviors to go unchecked. I allowed all of that to happen. And kind of similar to what I had said, my Palms were sweating. My voice was shaking. My heart was beating out of my chest. And Allie, too, right? was like, ah, this is like so hard to do. And I need to create this pivot because otherwise we just stay in that pattern. And so sometimes we're not ready to change the pattern. That's okay. You don't have to force this. But there's a point, I think, where we get a little tired of ourselves or there's a moment that just brings us to our knees. And we hit a rock bottom. It it takes us there eventually. And so I love this book, though, because even if you're not ready to go there right now, I use stories in such a way where you can see yourself. And so maybe you just learn through somebody else's journey, even if you're quite ready to make certain changes in your life right now. Yeah, I loved that one because I saw so much of my community and then also myself in, and mine wouldn't be so much with, maybe it would, but it's like the, what I would do is predict what they would say and do and just kind of use that as a way to not speak. Well, they're going to do this or they're going to say this. What's the point? Kind of like the, what's the point Mm -hmm. type of thing. And then I would try and just adjust myself for it or like change myself for it. I want to talk about something that it's like a esoteric kind of topic that I've been thinking about related to unconditional love because I've been unpacking unconditional love this year and I did a darkness retreat a few months ago and so it was four days in darkness and a lot of my time in darkness was thinking about all the ways that I self-abandon for connection and how connection for me is everything like I've just 
created a whole life that is based on me feeling connection because I felt so neglected and I was so neglected from a young age. And so connection to me is love. But it's it's in my mind, I don't know if it's because it's so deeply embedded within my psyche that connection is love that I don't know how to contextualize it as anything else. So what would you say like unconditional love is? Do you believe that we as humans are able to practice unconditional love all the time or it's something that we're able to feel? I believe that unconditional love can exist, but that relationships require conditions. That's so important because otherwise relationships are just a shit show, right? And then it's like, well, if you loved me, you would stay. If you yes. loved me, you wouldn't do this. If I was important enough to you, you wouldn't be setting this boundary. Yeah. We need conditions for relationships to thrive, right? It's not a threat. It's so that our dynamic can evolve and expand and be successful based on what it is that we want out of this. So yes, I think love can and is unconditional. Right? When we see somebody suffering or choosing something that we wouldn't choose or going down a path that we wouldn't go down, I can still have love for you. I might always have love for you, but I might choose not to be with you or I might choose to create some space because the condition for to thrive and for you to thrive is not this. And so that to me is the discrepancy, the sort of like how we would discern the unconditional versus the the conditions of. Dr. Gabor Mate talks about how so attachment and authenticity are the two lifelines. Yeah. And he says that when attachment is threatened for a child, they will always trade authenticity. Right. Because meaning, and this is what you're talking about. It's like mm -hmm. If the threat of neglect is there, like, who do I need to become? Like, how do I shape shift in some way? How do I trade who I am in order to get the connection, the love, the validation that I want? And so, again, when we are so accustomed to doing that as little kiddos moving through the world, because attachments are is survival. Authenticity doesn't have to be survival when we're kids. That's just the cherry on top, right, that we get to be like who we are and it's still loved and it's still good and you will accept me, right? But attachment is our survival. So of course we trade authenticity for attachment. We must. But when we've learned to do that, when we've learned to shapeshift, where we've learned, okay, here's who I need to become, whether it's through worthiness or belonging, or here's how I get prioritized, or here's how I get safety. You know, it's like, when we learn those things, it's so easy for us, obviously, to keep doing it. And so you could imagine, you know, wherever you are in your healing process and journey right now, right, the part of you who, that has historically shape-shifted, right, in order to try to maintain connection, right? And you're like, ooh, but I don't want to shape-shift. Like, I just mm -hmm. want to be who I am. I've shifted, shifted so long, I don't know what is not. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so that's been my exploration. I'm also just like, yeah, it's like, that's been my exploration in this past year is like, what is natural for me? And what is in my authenticity with people when I feel like I'm being loved, or I'm being accepted, or I'm, you know, giving this is it's like giving people the experience that they want. Mm -hmm. And that seems weird to say, but it's like, how can I pull back and understand what is truthfully me? Mm -hmm. And what is not just me 
feeling like it's me because I've received the validation from other people that I'm doing what they want. And it feels good because both feel good. Right. You know? Right. Well, because you have successfully learned how to get the thing. Yes. Right. Like, of course, that feels good. Yeah. You're a master at it, probably. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. and I think all of us in some ways become yes. masters totally. at the thing. Mm -hmm. you know, it's like we know how to perform. We know how to create the thing. And, you know, sometimes it's short lasting. Sometimes it might be long lasting. But yeah, it's like you have gotten the thing that you wanted out of doing that and being so successful at it. And so the part of you that's starting to, you know, your way out of it a little bit, it's scary, I'm sure, for you. And like you said, like, who am I actually? How do I unpack and unravel this? And what can I try on in order to even see, like, what happens if I share the authentic me? Who is the true me after all of these years of being someone slightly different. I think what we were saying before is there is always a risk. That's the really hard part here is that what you have learned to do has gotten you a temporary piece of what you want. But unhooking from that likely is going to not give you some of the stuff that you want. People may not create connection, you know, or you, yeah, like maybe there isn't validation there. And I think that's the part that brings you back into the processing of why am I doing this? Like, where am I headed? Kind of committing to the healing part of that, as opposed to just giving yourself the band-aid of this feels good at the moment. Um, and I think there's an element with this, everything is relational. Connection to self becomes really primary in what you're talking about. Because when you're used to finding ways to connect with others and that becomes the priority in it, it's you're actually having to shift to connection with self first before connection with other in the authentic way that you're discussing. And that's hard because we're like, oh, relationship with me, how do I connect deeply with myself? That would be your first place to spend a lot of time because I think when we already from what you said, I know that you probably do struggle with that a bit because you're like, who am I? Like, what is authentic? You know, that's not connection with self, right? Connection with self is getting to know who you actually are. Like, what do I actually desire? Who am I at my core? She's in there. It's to shift away from the external connection and to move towards the internal connection first. Then you can go back out into the external connection. But I think I imagine your experience with darkness. It's like, oh, yeah, like the external one. It's like, no, no, you're just yes. you with you mm -hmm. in that space. And I don't know if you've talked about it, mm -hmm. you know, yeah, yeah. before, yeah. but I imagine in that time there, it's like you can only face yeah. yourself. There, there's nothing else to see. No, nobody else around. You are just in it with you and a deeply confronting experience. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. I'm sure it was. Super psychological. Yeah. And beautiful. I was able to like experience my essence in a way that I've never, because I didn't even realize how in response I think we all are, but I realized that I was into everything, mm -hmm. to the environment, like to the lights, to the temperature, to you, to how you're sitting, to things I'm consciously watching, to things that I'm subconsciously, and to really figure out and parse out what is it, what is that feeling or that taste of me or of my soul and my experience was just really powerful but it did leave me to opening up 
the thought around connection in a different way. Yeah. Even in interviews, we meet so many people all the time. And for so long, it was like, okay, I'm meeting new people. I have to make them fall in love with me. It was like, what do I have to do in this hour to make everyone fall in love with me? And yeah. just kind of juking and jiving because it was a new person I wanted validation from. I wanted to listen to me. I wanted to have connection with. So that was just a perfect yeah. Petri dish for me to be that thing and really heal that thing. And now I've had to be more comfortable and okay with like, there's colleagues, there's friends, there's people, you know, that's okay to like have this amazing moment or conversation or this depth of connection. And like, you don't need to like totally be like loved. It just can yeah. be less of the hit for me than it was. It's so hard to trust it when parents, caretakers are teaching us through experience. Oh, yeah. You know, that's not what's available. Mm -hmm. Plenty of time in the book. It's like, how can I believe that I am worthy of love if my mother couldn't even love me, if she didn't even choose me? That's the trip. What you're describing yeah. is this deep, beautiful work that you're mm -hmm. doing to try it on. Where you're like, I don't know. But I'm going to give it a shot here to see if I can trust that the people who are in alignment with me are going to accept and love and connect to the part of me that doesn't need to perform, that does not need to show up in the way that I think somebody else wants me to show up, where I can just show up. Like you can still be pleasant and lovely and all the things, but you're not having to do that extra yeah. stuff where you're like, okay. I am not only thinking about myself, but I'm thinking about everybody else in this moment right now. And I'm going to find all of these ways to create the image of myself that I think you want to drop that part. And maybe not everybody is, oh my gosh, you're so amazing. Yes. Oh my God, give me your telephone Just number. Terrifying. And like, can we like, let's go. <laughs> that sounds awful. But now uh, I'm like, people ask me my number. I'm like, no. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, good. Yeah. I'm good. But that's it. It's like, you're starting to see that there will be people who do choose you, who do feel close and connected to you or want to get to know you more just as you are. Yeah. And it might not be all of the mm -hmm. people, right? And it might not be the entire room and it might not be, right? but there are people who do. And that's the gift. That's the beauty. And yeah, it shakes it up and you're mm -hmm. like, oh yeah, I don't know if I love every part mm -hmm. of this, but I'm giving it a shot because I want to live in authenticity. I want to have authentic relationships. I want the quality of this to be sort of the feedback loop that is, I am worthy. I am deserving. I'm good enough. I am safe here with you. I can trust you because I know that I'm presenting authentically. We can't trust when we lead with, here's what I can do for you. Here's what I have for you. Here's the, it's like, are you choosing me and loving me and connecting with me because here's who I can hook you up with? Yes. Here's the next show I can put you on, whatever that might be. And so it's like, yeah, to strip all of that away is not easy. But when we start to tend again to the original of neglect, and that's what you were talking about before. And you see that little girl who figured out, okay, how do I get connection? If there's neglect over here, how do I pull either you or other people in to paying attention to me, to seeing me, connecting with me, honoring? Yeah, it's like grieving that, right? Witnessing that that little you who had to work so hard and she, gosh, she got really damn good at it. That was the gift. Mm -hmm. But you don't need to use that gift in that way. Mm -hmm. You don't need to be driven by that pain when you resolve 
that pain from the past. When you spend time with it, that's where you get to choose, here's how I want to show up in the world. And it might be hard and I might feel that pull to perform and, oh, look who it is. And this is how I want to connect with you. But to still come back to, no, I'm going to lead with authenticity. If we think about the performance piece where it's, okay, I had to do these things to receive love. I mean, social media is that formula, like Mm. in 2D. So how do you feel like you're seeing some of the wounds appear on social media to be felt? Or do you see there's patterns between the wounds that you talk about as like major core wounds and what's happening on social media? Oh, sure. I think there's lots of different angles we can take with this. Mm. So for example, I know I could write a quote that I know exactly what you mean. Dude, I know exactly. That's the story of my life. It's like, I know I can write a quote that is going to get lots of likes. Or I can write a quote that will get fewer likes, but is actually going to be the message I want. And so many people are chasing the likes and the attention and the shares and the this. And that's more about, okay, how am I getting validation and attention this way? So there was a big shift that, you know, I've been on social for a long time, but And that's not how I operate at all. But I think also when I hear people who have edited their photo for like four hours or taken thousands of photos in order to get the right one, like the worthiness of, okay, do you love me? Are you liking me? Are you loving me? Are you seeing me? If I create this perfect image or if I create the perfect like life, then I will be held in high regard. And this is where my value and my worth in the world comes from. And, oh, yeah, we know there's obviously pieces to social that can be incredible. I've met some of the best people through, and there's a lot that it has to offer. But I think when we're really unresolved, all it does, all it does is just rupture our wounds more and more. I think when you're doing healing work, you can be in relationship with it in such a way where you're a bit more in charge Mm -hmm. as opposed to it owning you. Mm -hmm. And I think when we are unresolved and our pain is in the driver's seat, then social owns us. Our wounds owned us. Yeah, which is represented through social. It's like it just owns and that's how we, yeah, we just go down the rabbit hole of, here's somebody else, or I don't fit in, or I'm this, or I'm, it's like, all it does is exaggerate what's there. It's, it's so weird. It's so weird. Well, it's just crazy how it literally is the ego. Cause I think about even mine, I'm like, what am I trying to say and portray with Mm -hmm. this? But then sometimes I'm like, oh, I don't feel like it's a full representation of me, Mm -hmm. but why is that? What's the fear of me showing that other side? Right. Or what's the perception that I need to show every side? You know what I mean? Right. It's just we could go on a whole freaking can of worms with that. But I would love to just, as we sort of close, just kind of share an example of what it looked like for one of your clients to go through the process of the where they discovered the wound and then really worked with it and had freedom and liberation on the other side. Mm-hmm. I open with my story in the book. But the first client that I share, I really love her story. So... I talk about Natasha, and she's presenting for therapy. She's really excited to come in. Thank you for making space in your your schedule. And she's coming in because she's in a relationship with a guy named Clyde. I love your fake names. They're hilarious. They're hilarious, right? (laughs) Natasha and Clyde. Natasha and Clyde. Let's go. I know. Coming up with the fake names was like a 
thing. It's hilarious. Who do I want you to be? Yes. And it's funny when people ask me about like random, I'm like, who are you? Which one are you? Yeah, totally. <laughs> because I'm like, you're not was, the name. I was listening to you on another thing. I'm like, wow, she's having to switch in her head really yeah. fast. Yeah, it's hard. Yeah, for sure. So Natasha and Clyde, and she's coming in to, for therapy because she knows that an engagement is right around the corner and she's trying to decide whether or not she should stay in the relationship with Clyde mm. or exit. She presents with this story of like, I'm just waiting for the other shoe to drop. And we start talking and I'm like, well, has the other shoe dropped in past relationships? No. Has the other shoe dropped in your family? And she's like, no, like I don't, you know, the kind of the classic, why do therapists always have to go back to your totally. family? Like it's, I had a perfect childhood. Like you're not going to find anything there. So we just, we continue talking and we're going through the sessions and there's this one session where something opens and she shares with me that when she was a teenager, she was using her father's computer. He had said it was okay. There was an email open and she read the messages between her father and someone who wasn't her mother. They were talking about how much they loved each other and how fun the weekends were, and all of this. And so here's this affair is revealed to her in this way. And her dad walks in on her. And she has tears in her eyes. She's looking up at her dad. Her dad says, please don't tell your mom or your sister. I promise I'll cut it off. So she doesn't. She holds the secret and in some ways, like, actually kind of absorbs it because this had shattered her. This was the other shoe dropping because she had really held her dad on a pedestal. He was home every night by whatever p.m. They had dinner together as a family. Seemingly, he loved his wife and the girls, everything was fine. And so this was one of those things that was just so shattering and confusing to her because the image that she held of her wonderful, lovely, perfect family was no longer. But there was a secret that had to be held. Didn't have to be held, but she wound up holding it and he had asked her to. So she absorbed it and then had to go on. So she didn't actually recognize and identify this as playing into something because she had almost forgotten about it. It wasn't until that session that she had ever spoken this story out loud decades later. And it was in that moment where she realized, okay, this trust wound that had been born decades earlier that she had really forgotten about because she had to, right? Like when you try to make a system work, when you try to make your family system work in whatever role you have to take on, right? She became a secret holder, right? And she did her job brilliantly. It's like she did it. No one knew. And then they could, quote unquote, go on as that lovely, perfect family. And dad had stopped it, right? Because they had this unspoken agreement that in order for her to hold the secret, he would not do it. She would check his emails and, I guess, phone mm-hmm. at the time. I'm thinking like, what year was it? You know, yeah, but like, you know, she, she was checking the things and you're like, what a role for me, head, right? But okay, here's what I need to do to make the system go on. And I never get to address my pain. I never get to address anything that's going on because this is what I need to do to survive. And so here's this moment of therapy where the aha moment takes place and she recognizes that, yeah, that was the other shoe dropping for her, right? This image of the family got shattered and she was existing in her relationships, Clyde, but also every relationship that came before it, she would sabotage. Or find a way to exit the relationship prematurely. There was always this feeling that something bad would happen. And so she found a way to run away from it by leaving. And here she was right at the precipice of it again. 
where she's like, I have to really figure out if I'm going to stay. And he was this great man, right? The way that she described him, he was amazing, but constantly feeling like something bad's going to happen. Something bad's going to happen. And so when we identified it, we spent time. I walk people through an origin healing practice in the book, which is layered and has some complexity to it. But she had to name and identify that wound was there. We had to spend time witnessing the pain. Oh my goodness, what she carried, what she held, the secret, the guilt, the shame, not just for, well, keeping it from her mom, becoming a participant in this betrayal. There was this outside betrayal, but then she participated in it. So there was a lot of complexity to that. The grief, right, of never, like she had to hold that all together for so long, right? There's just so much pain there. So we had to work through that. But then eventually we enlist Clyde. Hey, you've never shared this with anyone besides you feel like maybe we can open up and express some of this with Clyde and let him into more of your internal story. Thankfully, right, she had a partner who was amazing. And I know that that is not everyone's case. I know that we don't always have the partner who can hear the thing and can hold the space for us. In this case, she did. He listened and he acknowledged and he held that and understood why there was this part of her that was really scared. They were able to move through this where, okay, well, if there's a part that shows up in a moment where you're starting to question something or you feel like trust is on the rocks a little bit, like share that with me. Talk, and I can reaffirm whatever it is that needs to be reaffirmed. I can, yeah, I can just share with you and be open with you so that you can feel a sense of trust and safety with me. And I don't paint that picture like, and it's a walk in the park. And this mm-hmm. is it's like, there's plenty of examples in there where I'm like, and they still did the same patterns. Yeah. You know, it's like, this isn't an idealized life is complex. There's layers to it. We don't just like name the thing and then yeah. grieve and witness. And we're like, we did it. And we're then done. they got married. And, we, yeah. <laughs> yeah. and everything is fine yeah. all the time. There's plenty of stories where it's like, yeah, no, or there's endings to relationships, right? I'm not just sharing the happy endings in terms of the outcomes that we were talking about before. There's outcomes that are lovely. And then there's outcomes where it's like, this isn't what I wanted, but I gained myself in it. Well, there's happy and there's sad and then there's truth. Yeah. You know, which can hold all of it. Right. In it. That's what I've also been really working with is like truth as the ultimate. Right. It's like truth is the ultimate because that's freedom and liberation. And that will always, for me, bring me closer to peace. Right. Right. Which is like... The feeling that you want a little, sometimes over just happy all the time. That's right. Peace. People ask me like, what do you get from this book? And I was like, I think internal peace. Yes. I think internal peace. Very peaceful to read. Yeah. When you do this work, there is an internal peace that can happen. Mm -hmm. And yeah, improving the quality of your relationships, improving the quality of your life. Absolutely. But ultimately, it's like, yeah, there's an internal peace when we live in the truth. When we can see the thing that needs to be seen. When we can witness and acknowledge the things that need to be witnessed and acknowledged, where we can be with our pain finally in a way that is directional. And that's the gift. And I think, you know, what I want to say about it is I wrote this book so that you would read it as the adult child, but you're going to also read it from the position of being a partner to someone, being a friend to someone, being a parent to someone. And there's this great exercise at the end that, psychotherapist Michael Kerr offers, which is think of your mother as your grandmother's daughter Mm. and just see what changes there, right? Like see the shift in perspective. This work is 
there's value in understanding context. Context isn't an excuse, but there's something really profound about remembering that we are all tiny little human beings growing up in family systems that were probably very imperfect and flawed that had complexity to them. And I think the gift of this is that even if you're like, well, okay, of those five wounds, mine are worthiness and safety. Mm. So like, let me skip over the others. It's like, nope. I was like, all of them. All Right. Some people are like, can can you have all five? You will see the people you love in other chapters. You will see the people who matter to you in other stories. And that's so important for you to remember because when we come to the plate with each other, it's not just about your wounds. It's about their wounds too. You know, it's not just about your story. It's about their story too. And the third section, it's like, there's complexity to this, right? It's like, we talk about how when those wounds merge, what do we do? Yeah. And that is so important to have that perspective and think about each other with the complexity, the rich history that we all have that's coming forward. So that's huge. It's huge. It's such a great book. It's just the stories are great. It's like so easy to read. I felt very safe reading it. Mm -hmm. I felt it as just like a really nice offering. And Mm -hmm. I think that's what's so powerful about A book like this is that for people that are fearful about going down the path of their origins, Mm -hmm. it's like you can start with this even before you go to therapy if you want and just kind of explore things in your own peace and in your own, you know, the comfort of your own home. That's right. It's like I know that there's many people who will never go to years or decades of therapy. This needs to be offered. And so, yeah, I'm very excited that people can read from the comfort their own home go at the pace that works for them see themselves and others like that's it it's like if you're not even ready you're just like i don't know if i want to do any of the practices that's okay don't come back to it but read about other people's stories see what that ignites within you amazing thank you so much thank you thank you so much vienna it was such a pleasure again the book is the origins of you and you can follow her on instagram at mindful mft And thank you to our sponsors for this episode, bringing you brands we love and discounts that are awesome. Make sure you check out the discounts in the show notes as well as on almost30.com. Thank you for listening. We appreciate you. We love you. And we are here to support you in your evolution as always. And we'll see you on the next one. See you soon. Bye. Bye.